Let's turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. A couple years back, I had a friend of mine who was given a gift by his wife to go skydiving. And this guy's kind of an adrenaline junkie, and so he was all excited about that. And we went all the way out to this place where they were supposed to jump, and I never saw him jump. I don't know where he came out and where he went down, but he uh, landed safely, and he was obviously in tandem with somebody else. But it's really important if you're a skydiver, and I don't plan to be a skydiver. I'm scared of heights. So... Um, it's really important that several things are operating properly. Your parachute, you need to make sure that you oversee who's putting your parachute in. That's really important that you get that right. You need to have a backup parachute. You need to have a knife in case your first parachute fails so you can cut that loose. And you probably need to have some device on you that will automatically open the parachute if for some reason you forget to open the parachute at the right time. But one thing is for sure, it's one thing to pack a parachute for somebody else. It's another thing to pack your own parachute. And I'm always intrigued by how people are much more concerned about their business than someone else's. And that's the way it is with the gospel, and that's the way it is with our salvation. The most concerned person about your salvation should be you. And John is very concerned about the people that he's writing this letter to, and he wants them to know God. He wants them to know that they know God. He wants them to know that their love for God's being perfected, and he wants them to know that they're abiding in him. And so John is going to help these people with three tests to help them understand if they are really Christians, if they really have come to know Christ. It's very important for him that they know that. And what that tells us is that we can know if we belong to God. And so that's an incredible, incredible encouragement. Now, so we're going to look today at how do I know that I know Christ? How do I know that I know Christ? And that's the most important thing to know. The Bible says we have a soul that will never die. Once we physically die, we will go into eternity to either be with, be with God or to be away from God. And so it's very important that we know that. Now, there's a lot of confusion in our culture about what it means to be a Christian. About 75% of Americans claim some allegiance to Jesus Christ. In a recent Gallup poll done in December of 2014, we found that 50% called themselves Christians, 24% called themselves Catholic, 2% called themselves Mormon, 2% called themselves Jewish, 1% called themselves Muslim, 3% other non-Christian religions of some sort, 16% said they had no belief in God, they were either atheist or agnostic, and 3% gave no response. There's a lot that goes into the confusion. But what we're seeing in this passage with John is, is that if we know Jesus, things are changing in our lives. If there's 75% of Americans who know Jesus, then that means 75% of Americans need to be changing and slowly becoming more like Jesus. So it's hard to understand the moral slide that our country's in if that is truly the case that 75% do know him. Now, there's lots of definitions of being a Christian. Sometimes we're just a Christian because we grew up in a country that claimed to be a Christian nation. It could be that we've gone to a Christian church from time to time. It may be that we believe some of the facts about the Bible. We may believe that Jesus is the Lord and that he is the one who saves people. We may have that kind of intellectual knowledge of those things. Um, we may have at one point prayed a prayer to ask Jesus to come into our life. And we believe that because we did that, we are now a Christian. God doesn't want us to know about him. He wants us 
to know him. When I was on staff at a church in Fort Worth, I was the singles minister and I was in charge of college and career and all the singles up to death. And I remember one summer we had vacation Bible school and we had an auditorium that was much larger than this. We had it packed with kids for vacation Bible school. And I remember our pastor standing up before the kids and he had had some discussion about different things. And then he asked the question, how many of you would like to go to heaven? Well, that's kind of a no-brainer question, isn't it? And so all, we have this sea of hands go up all over the auditorium. And then he said, okay, if you've raised your hand, you need to pray this prayer. And if you pray this prayer, then you can know you're a Christian. And so literally for the next several weeks, we had baptisms and baptisms and baptisms of kids who had raised their hands and prayed the prayer and had, had confidence that they were his. And at that point in my life as a young minister, that was a little bit concerning. I didn't know what was wrong with it, but something wasn't right with that. In Matthew 7, 21, we're told not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I want to talk a little bit on the front end of this message about the whole issue of praying the prayer. Okay? Um, not everyone who prays the prayer will enter the kingdom of heaven. And that kind of has become, for a lot of us in our Christian circles, kind of how we know we're a Christian. I remember when I prayed the prayer when I was 11. And I remember writing that in my Bible, the date, November 26, 1969. And I held on to that as proof that I was a believer. Um, but when we get in here to 1 John, John doesn't ask us to do that. He doesn't even suggest that that's what needs to be done. And there is a... Um, the belief comes from the idea that all I have to do is reach out to Jesus in some tangible way and I know that I'm now a Christian. Okay? It doesn't really matter necessarily what my motives are. They need to be sincere. But as long as I reach out, it's okay. I, 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 I'm saved. And I remember being on the Athletes in Action basketball team and giving the gospel presentation. At the end, I would pray a prayer for the whole crowd. And then I would say at the end, if you prayed that prayer then according to 1 John chapter 5, verses uh, 13, you can know for sure that you're his. Their confidence was based upon their decision to pray the prayer. Some people call this decisional regeneration. Now, for some of those people in that audience, that decision, that prayer, brought them to eternal life. For others in that crowd of people, they prayed the same prayer as everybody else, but there was no change. Let's turn to John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, we're told the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 or 4,000. And he does that in the first part of John chapter 6. And then he dismisses the crowd... And he gets in the boat with his disciples and he goes across to the other side of Galilee. And the next day, the crowd's looking for him that he just fed. And they can't find him. So they make a trek around the Sea of Galilee until they find Jesus. And they're looking for him. They're seeking Jesus. They want to be with Jesus. There's something here they want. Look at verse 26. John answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They were seeking Jesus. They were passionately seeking Jesus. But they weren't seeking Jesus because they wanted to know him personally. They wanted what? It's time to eat. This free food thing is great. 
I mean, I, we can just live off of this. This is wonderful. And if we ever get sick, he's going to heal us so we have no doctor's bills. It's just a great deal. And he, they even tell Jesus, remember Jesus in the, in the wilderness, how God gave them manna? Hint, hint, hint. We're ready for the next meal. Unless something happens to us, radical, we may seek Jesus, but it's with a self-centered motivation. It could be that we just want a life of blessing. We think that if we add Jesus to our, to our car or add him to our life, that he's going to, to bless us. Um, it may be that everybody in my family is a Christian, so I need to also trust Jesus so that I can be part of everybody. I don't want to get left out. It may be that I just want to ease your life. There's all kinds of reasons why we would, or maybe we're in a situation where we're, we're in a tough life situation. Maybe I'm sick or I'm in an unemployed situation and I'm really desperate. Life is crushing in on me and I cry out to God for help. And God relieves the pressure and we say, well, that's, I now know I'm a Christian because God answered my prayer. There's a lot of confusion about this. Jesus clears up the confusion. If you go to verse 37 of John chapter 6, he tells us, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So let's follow what Jesus is saying. Jesus says the Father is going to give him followers. That intimates that, and it intimates that every one he gives Jesus, Jesus is going to hang on to. Every follower that the Father sends to Jesus, Jesus is going to hang on to. And whoever comes to me, because they've been sent by the Father, I will what? Never cast out. That's great news, isn't it? If the father sends someone to Jesus, Jesus is not going to lose them. Oh, where did I, where did I put them? What happened to them? I mean, where did they go? He catches everyone the father sends him. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. What's God's will in this matter? That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So the Father sends Jesus believers, people he'll, who will trust him. Jesus' job is to lose none of them and to make sure they're all what? Resurrected on the last day. Isn't that great? It's amazing. Now, for he makes this statement. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So nobody comes to Jesus in saving faith unless the Father draws them to Jesus and I will raise him up at the last day Jesus goes on in this passage and he tells them some very hard things about following him and this, there's a huge crowd I mean they are super passionate they are super excited and when he gets through telling them the cost of following him most of them leave Matter of fact, he turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave me too? So all the enthusiasm, all the excitement about following Jesus, when Jesus starts laying down what it's going to mean for them to follow him, they're gone. This shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because in the parable of the soils, we have four soils. We have the hard soil, we have the shallow soil, we have the soil that has the weeds in it, and then we have the good soil. Only one of the four soils, and the soils represent the heart of people. There's only one soil that produces fruit. That soil is the good soil. The hard soil 
When the word hits it, it just bounces off. It's taken away immediately. You hear a message, you don't remember it the next day, it doesn't impact your life whatsoever and you're busy about your life. The second soil, there is some acceptance of Jesus and it's with excitement and the plant grows but because it's shallow soil, the roots never get down deep enough. There's really not a deep connection with God and those people eventually fall away. If you've been in church life at all, you've seen that happen. We had a a ministry outreach in Fort Worth and we had a, a man who was involved in drugs and we shared the gospel with him and he prayed and trusted Jesus and he was excited for three days. Three days. And then he went back to what he was doing, never to come back to follow Jesus. He was a shallow soil. The third soil is, of course, the one with the thorns. So it grows, but because of the cares of the world and the worries of the world and all the things we have going on, it never produces any fruit. There's only one soil. It's the good soil. Now, as you read that parable, the natural inclination on how to read that parable is, boy, I sure hope I'm a good soil because I don't want to be one of those other three. Jesus in Romans 3, verse 9 through 18 has a word for us. In Romans, he is explaining the sinfulness of people who are not part of Israel, the Gentiles. And he talks about even though they have the word of God in their heart, God's put God's rules in their heart, they have rejected God and gone their own way. And then he talks about Israel. And he says, even though Israel has been blessed with the prophets and the tabernacle and the temple and all these things, their heart has still gone astray. So whether you're Gentile or Jew, your hearts have gone astray. And he's pick up in verse 9 of chapter 3 of Romans. What then? Are we Jews any better off? This is Paul talking. And the answer is no, not at all. Even though we have the law, God's word, and we have the temple, and we have the holy land, <coughs> and we have all the prophets... We're not any better off. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Gentiles and Jews have a problem. They've been affected by sin. And they've been affected radically by sin. As we go on to read, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Did you catch that? He's making a blanket statement about all Jews and all Gentiles. He doesn't say some are not righteous or most are not righteous. He says none are righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Then he finishes by saying, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Where's the good soil? There's no good soil there. There's none. Everyone is not seeking God. But as we read the Bible, we find people who are seeking God. So what's going on there? How's that happening? Because he's clearly told us, and this passage that he quotes in Romans 3 is also back in Psalms. So he's simply making the statement. We saw that a lot in in Noah, remember Noah's situation? Noah preached for 120 years, had no converts but his family. None. What's the problem? Ephesians 2, 1 through 4 tells us this. Ephesians 2, 1 says this. Paul's talking to the Ephesian Christians. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. This is what he's saying in Romans 3. Because of what, sin, what happened with sin in the garden, with the rebellion against God, all men are under sin 
and none of them are seeking God. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience. And at one point, brothers and sisters, we were all sons and daughters of what? Disobedience. All of us here in this room were sons of disobedience and daughters. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But who's he talking to? He's talking to the believers in Ephesus. You were once this way. Children of disobedience, children of wrath. What's children of wrath mean? God's wrath was coming against your wickedness. And then we have this wonderful chapter, verse, verse 4. So here we have this horrible scene. Men are dead in their trespasses and sins. Romans 3 tells us they're all headed for wrath, and we hear a Bible, but, but, but says what? Even though everything's going this way to destruction, God does what? He turns the whole thing the other direction. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, did what? made us alive together with Christ. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Men were dead. No desire to reach out to God whatsoever. If they did reach out to God, it was because there was some motivation, but it wasn't a motivation that would bring them into fellowship with God. So what did God do? God made them alive. God made you and I alive. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. If we're believers here today, if we're following Jesus, we were at one point dead. And many of us may have prayed a prayer along the way. There are two things that have to happen for someone to be saved. Let's look at the illustration of having babies. Two things have to happen for someone to have a child. One, God has to open the womb. And number two, there has to be intimacy between the man and the wife. You can have intimacy between the man and the wife 24-7, Till we're blue in the face. But if God does not open the womb, there is no baby born. We see this with Hannah, right? Hannah wanted a baby so bad, and she prayed for years and fasted and prayed and fasted and drove her husband crazy wanting to have a baby. And she prayed and asked God, and the Bible says God opened, he heard her prayer, and he opened her womb. And then she had not just one, but several children. Now, if that's true in physical birth, we're going to find here in a minute, it's also true in spiritual birth. God has to, number one, change our heart. He has to make us alive spiritually. And then we must trust Jesus and repent of our sin. It happens in that order. If we just have somebody who prays a prayer for whatever reason they want to pray a prayer, but God has not made them alive, there's nothing, there's nothing that happens except they become more religious. We need, and this is what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, What are you telling Nicodemus in John 3? You must be born again. You're the leader of Israel. You know God's law. He said, but for you to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. This is a work of the Spirit of God. If you and I here today know Jesus, 
and are growing in grace and growing in obedience and growing in love for God, then at some point in the past, and we may not be able to pinpoint it exactly, at some point in the past, he made you alive spiritually. The Father gave you to Jesus, if you will, and you woke up to the fact that you had a problem. Because before you didn't think you had a problem. John 16, 8 tells us the ministry of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does this incredible work in us of making us alive. And it says here in 16, verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I don't know about you, but when I came to Jesus, I was very aware of my sin like I'd never been before. I was very aware of the judgment of God upon my life, the wrath of God hanging over me. And I was very aware that Jesus was the answer. I didn't come to that on my own. I I was in church for years and heard presentation after presentation after presentation after presentation of the gospel. And I just sat there and did nothing. But once God made me alive, I heard it with new ears. And I acted by faith and repentance. And may I say, by the grace of God. So the Spirit, his job is to go and wake up people who are dead in their sins. And our job is to what? Sow the seeds of the gospel in their life and tell them how wonderful Jesus is. And tell them about their sin and what it's going to do for them. And call them to believe and repent. If God doesn't go before us, we're simply throwing seeds on the wood floor. This is a work of the Spirit in our lives. Notice John 1, 12. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So he's talking about people who received Jesus, who believed in his name, they became children of God. How did that happen? And he says, who were born, not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of, parentheses, the will of God. How were these people in John 1.12 born again? They were born by the will of God. It wasn't, even their, it wasn't initially their decision or anything else that had to do with them. They were first born and made alive by God, and then they were able to repent and believe. It's like, imagine us all being blindfolded and we're walking and we hear the ocean. This sounds so wonderful. And we're just walking along and we're blind to the fact that we're walking to a cliff. And from the cliff, it's a thousand foot drop to the rocks below. And we're just walking. And God in his mercy comes along and by the spirit, he pulls away the blinders, and we see our situation clearly, and we immediately head the other direction. This is what the Spirit does for all those who don't know him, who he works in their lives, is he pulls off the blinder, they see their sin for what it really is, they see what it's going to do in their relationship with God, they see Jesus as the only answer. And then we're given the grace to believe and to repent. So it takes two things. First of all, we have to be born again. Secondly, we have to believe and repent. It goes in that order. Now, when I was doing Campus Crusade and spiritual laws, I thought it went like this. First, I get you to pray the prayer. And once you pray the prayer... Then the Spirit of God makes you alive and you're born again. But the responsibility to become a Christian lay completely on this person. The Scripture teaches that first a person's dead and the Spirit makes them alive. And then, by the grace of God, they now trust completely in Jesus... 
and are willing to turn from their sin and follow him. This was, this is the difference between the first great awakening and the second great awakening. The first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, they were dependent upon the spirit to wake people up and they would preach the message trusting that if, they, if the spirit had done a work, they would respond and believe. So it was, re, it was rebirth, it was rebirth first and then trusting and conversion. The second great awakening, Charles Finney. Finney believed that the main decision maker was the person. And therefore, he created all types of devices to woo people to come to God and to appeal to their emotions. And this is where you get the altar call where people come forward. And he had a repentance bench where people would sit and mourn over their sin. But he, he really didn't believe, he believed the Spirit came after the decision was made. So the man was the primary decision maker, and then God stepped in and did what he was going to do. The first great awakening, they had towns where they didn't need the police anymore. God woke them up. They believed and repented, and their lives were changed. Radical transformation. Second great awakening. Lots of decisions, lots of people praying the prayer, lots of people coming down the aisle, no change, no change. There are two decision makers for people to have salvation. God is the primary decision maker. The Father sends a person Jesus' direction by the power of the Spirit. Jesus receives him, and he is transformed. But when that person is sent to Jesus, that person makes a real decision. They make a real decision. They believe in Jesus, and they repent of their sins. But they are freed to do that by the grace of God that made them alive. The grace of God that made them alive gives them the grace to repent and believe. Therefore, God is sovereign in salvation. Man is not sovereign in salvation. If God does not act first, he can do whatever he wants to second. He's not going to want to, according to Romans 3. Romans 3, he doesn't care about God. He's not looking for God, and he's living a life of rebellion against God. The reason you and I are here is because the Spirit came upon us and made us alive. What a blessing. What an incredible blessing. And by faith, we repented and we believed. Now, the view that first comes being born again and then comes conversion that was what was going on at the beginning of this country. Got our little New England primer here. This is where millions of Americans learned how to read. And within it, there was the Westminster Catechism, and there was a, a, a children's catechism by John Cotton. This is what people grew up reading and believing and laid the foundation for the First Great Awakening, which was transformational. Let's look at question 31 in the Shorter Catechism. And I'll try to read this because this is still in the older English. Um, effectual calling is the word, that's what we've been talking about, effectual calling. What's effectual calling? The Spirit calls you and you come. It's not he calls you, you go, I, I'll think about it. He calls you and you come. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, 
and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offering to us, freely offered to us in the gospel. That's what the Spirit does. He convinces us. He enlightens our minds and he renews our wills so that we're able to repent and believe. Now let's go to the children's catechism. John Cotton wrote this, and he's going to define for us the question of what is faith. Faith is the grace of the Spirit, whereby I deny myself and believe on Christ for righteousness and salvation. Notice how he described faith. It is the grace of the Spirit. It is the grace of the Spirit. Did you believe? You absolutely did believe. Did you make a commitment to Christ? You absolutely did. By what? By the grace of the Holy Spirit working through you. Because you didn't have it on your own. The fall of man was so total, you weren't able to do it. What is repentance? Next question down. Repentance is a grace of the Spirit, whereby I loathe my sins and myself for them and and confess them before the Lord and mourn after Christ for the pardon of them and for grace to serve him in newness of life. Grace and repentance are a great, or repentance and faith are a grace of the Spirit. Jesus doesn't just do this. He doesn't just die on the cross and expect you to get there the best way you can. Because the reality is he could have done that and without the work of the Spirit, let me tell you how many people would have come to Jesus in faith. Zero. Romans 3. None righteous, No, not one. No one who seeks God. No fear of God in their eyes. If Jesus had died and the Spirit was not operating, no one would have come. That's how bad off we were in our sin. We were dead in our transgressions and sin. But praise God, he was merciful to us. He was merciful to you and to me. And he made us alive. And he gave us the grace to repent and believe. Have you forgot that, brothers and sisters? That is amazing grace. We were looking and seeking and trying to find him. He came after us. Notice what Jesus said when he came to earth. I came to what? Seek and to save the lost. Remember the Pharisees were giving him a hard time. He said, I didn't come to, to help those who were well. Were they well? No, they weren't well. But they thought they were. He came to seek and to save the lost. The Apostle John does not ask his audience to remember when they prayed the prayer. He does not lead them to to drive down the stake and write it on their Bible when they trusted Jesus. He does not ask them to rededicate their lives to Christ. He gives them three simple signs that give evidence that God has changed them. John's assumption is if if you have come in contact with Jesus in a saving way, you will not remain the same. You will not remain the same. If Jeffrey Prady came in the back door and he's telling us a story, he said, you won't believe what happened. I was coming to, I was coming to church and I got hit by a train. But I'm good. Everything's good to go. Here I am. 
Would we believe Jeffrey? No. Because when you get hit by a train, it changes your life, doesn't it? Or it finishes your life, doesn't it? So if you have had an encounter with Jesus, the God of the universe, even though we already learned in chapter one, we're still going to be fighting against sin, but we've learned that we will be changed. We will be changed. In three through six, he talks about the fact that one of the signs that we know we're his is that there is now obedience to Christ. That is the first sign that he gives us. Verse three. So that was all the introduction right there. I just finished that. <laughs> Don't fear, little children. We will, we will, not, we will not tarry much longer. Notice what he says. Let's go back up here now. Now, here's one thing I want to say as we're unpacking this. There can be a real tendency here to focus on obedience or loving the saints or our doctrine. And we can disconnect those from the gospel. Notice what he starts with is in verse 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The first sign that you're a believer and that he assumes here is that you're trusting completely in Jesus alone. Not are you having a good obedience track record. Are you having a good track record on loving people? The first thing he assumes is that Jesus is your advocate and he is the one who has atoned for you. Jesus, we talked last week, took on the wrath of God for us. And it's out of that relationship that he's established and as we think about that, that gives us the momentum for obedience and love for the saints. It literally changes our lives. So John wants them to know for sure that they know know God. Not just know about God, but know God. And they're dealing with people in their churches who say they know God, but they don't. They say they know God, but they're not obeying God's word. I think we're going to save three through six. For next time. Now, I told you about the church I was in, Fort Worth. And, and I loved, I loved my pastor and I loved the people there. But there was a misunderstanding of what happens in the background for people to be saved. And our pastor had a goal that every Sunday somebody would walk the aisle, either in recommitment or church membership or salvation. We had a man in our church who was a vet and he came forward years earlier and prayed the prayer. Matter of fact, um, he was asked to pray the prayer in his home with our pastor. And so they, they got down on their knees and they prayed the prayer and he did what I did when I was with the campus crusade. Praise God, congratulations, you're now a child of God and yay, you're now his. Uh, This man's walk with God was always up and down. Uh, He would go off and get away from the church. They would finally bring him back for kind of youth youth revivals. We'd go for like a youth getaway for a week. He'd come back. He'd be a coach. He would get all excited again. Then he would fall away. And that was his pattern. 
falling away, coming back, falling away, coming back. Finally, he left his wife. He left his family. He moved down to Central America, living in some backwoods little town, away from his family. And he dies. And we have the funeral. And we're trying to make sense of this life of a person who knows Jesus, who's a Christian, but basically went AWOL completely. And they had people talking about his life and what he meant to them and all this and that. And I knew some of the sons and all the tragedy that was going on in the family as a result of all this. And the pastor stood up there and he said, and he's just, he's just almost thinking out loud to himself as he's doing the ceremony. He says, you know, the ways of God are mysterious. I, I don't understand them. And he's just thinking about this man's life and where it ended. And he said, I don't understand it. Because the fruit of his life showed no sign that Jesus had made a change in his life. At best, he was a soul number two. And he said, but this one thing I know, I know that he prayed that prayer with me on that Wednesday night in his home. And I know he's with Jesus. May I say, again, Paul, John does not talk about praying a prayer. John does not talk about all these things. He talks about trusting in Jesus alone and that it produces obedience and love for the saints and a right belief in Christ. And what I want to say today is, if you see in your life a bunch of fruit that's going rotten, if you see a lot of stuff in your life that's not going rotten, there is no desire, there is no real love for God, there is no real love for his word, There really is no more obedience than just to put on a veneer for church. There is no joy of God in your life. But you're holding on to some event where you prayed a prayer friends. That's not going to save you. It's not going to save you. What is going to save you is to put your faith completely in Christ. Throw yourself on his mercy. Repent of your sin. The most important decision you and I make is what we do with Jesus. That's the most important decision we make. I can promise you, if there's no change in your life since you made that decision, none, you don't know him. Because he will change your life. And don't go, well, I I know I'm a Christian because I come to church regularly and I I, I pray and I give to the church and I read my Bible and and we have this list. Paul said, I count everything of my righteousness as rubbish to know Christ. May God's spirit, if you don't know him, open your eyes today that you're simply walking through some religious activities. Matthew 7, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and this and this and this? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. We're not talking perfect obedience. What we are talking is progressive obedience, where we're growing in the grace of God. Do not put your trust in a prayer. Put your trust completely in Jesus.
And if you need to talk to somebody, I know that the elders would love and Cody would love to talk with you about that. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And we acknowledge that we need you to save us. Every one of us here who is a believer, you came after us by your spirit. You made us alive. You gave us the grace to repent and believe. And you daily give us the grace to obey your word and to love the saints and to do what you're calling us to do. Father, I pray today if there's anyone here who is holding on to their understanding of God or their church affiliation or that people say they're just a great Christian or whatever the issue is, as we go through this study, I pray that they would look at the tests that John gave. They're simple, they're easy. Father, help them to turn their attention to Jesus and to cry out to him, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, we praise you that you've been merciful to us. We thank you that you'll be merciful to them. Father, I pray you give them grace to lay aside their religious activities and consider them rubbish and to consider Christ everything. Father, do only what you can do. We cannot make people alive. All we can do is share the gospel with them. And the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now it's time for us to pray. And I would like to ask uh, Brian Murphy to lead us off. And I would like to ask um, Bob to close us.